Mohammed Aziz and Khalil Islam spent 22 years in prison for a crime they did not commit. These men became victims of the same racism and injustice that were the antithesis of all that Malcolm X stood for. This doesn't solve Malcolm's murder, but at least it, it brings more tr uh, truth to the matter of what actually happened. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news stories? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporters every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Welcome to The Debrief. I'm Chris Glorioso in for David Ushery. Today, we delve deeper into a fascinating and sometimes heartbreaking story of justice delayed for far too long. I am joined by Vanessa Potkin, who's the Director of Special Litigation at the Innocence Project, and Deborah Francois of the Shanus Law Firm, they represent the family of Khalil Islam, and they represent Muhammad Aziz, two men who were falsely convicted of the killing of Malcolm X. It is really an earth-shattering story. And Deborah, let me start with you. Uh, can you talk to me just from a personal standpoint? Uh, the work that you have done has, has so many levels to it, but perhaps the most important one is the human level. Uh, there's a man who spent more than 20 years in prison and another one who died after he spent more than 20 years in prison, whose names are now cleared. Exactly, I mean, this has been an exoneration in the making for 55, 56 years. And as you touched, it's an understatement to say that Muhammad, Khalil and their family suffered tremendously. The two men combined spent 42 years in prison, several of them in solitary confinement. At the time of their conviction, they were torn from their families including their young children who are as young as a year old, and their children have to grow up without a father and bearing the stigma that their fathers were labeled as the assassins of one of the greatest civil rights activists in the world. So they have suffered tremendously, and it's just been a lot for them to take in. I wonder, Vanessa, one of the antecedent questions here really is, what evidence was there ever that these two men were involved in the assassination of Malcolm X? Well, in short, there was no reliable evidence. Um, they were convicted at a trial where the state presented conflicting eyewitness accounts um, of what happened that day. And so you had eyewitness testimony, which is the leading cause of wrongful conviction. But I think in this case, um, it was pretty apparent from the transcripts that um, witnesses were coached and their accounts just conflicted with one another with their prior um, testimony. And so there was not a shred of reliable evidence to implicate them. And in fact, both had um, alibis at the time. Mr. Aziz had a leg injury and had even seen a doctor earlier that day and so um, the, and was at home. And there was additional evidence uncovered through the post-conviction reinvestigation that, you know, further supported the alibi and undermined the eyewitness testimony. Um, you know, but, but most importantly, there was suppressed evidence. The government hid evidence that they knew from the start, you know, from the day that the crime happened um, that pointed away from Mr. Um, Islam and Mr. Aziz and, and two other individuals. Deborah, what has it been like representing the family of one of these men and representing the other one himself uh, long having professed their innocence, and there has long been a number of questions about uh, why it was that the FBI and NYPD were unable to prevent this assassination, given 
there was a lot of known animosity between the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X at the time. I mean, it's certainly been a privilege representing Muhammad and Khalil, and I just want to note that it's truly been a team effort because over the years, there's just been a chorus of powerful and significant voices shouting from the rooftops that Muhammad and Khalil are innocent, that they had nothing to do with this crime at all. They never should have been arrested, charged, or convicted, and that's just been in plain sight for over five decades. This doesn't happen in a vacuum. This is a time where uh, law enforcement's role in... Um, arresting people of color uh, and the reasons therefore and the prosecutorial prog uh, process that, that unfolds is under a lot of scrutiny and rightfully so, but this happened back in 1965 and 1966. What lessons do you think we need to learn from the errors that were made in this prosecution? I think that, you know, the issues that were, um, you know, that plagued really the investigation and trial here and were of the moment in 1965 are just as relevant today. I think part of the message of this case is just that these um, inequities um, of the system continue to persist. So there is a lot of work to do. And I think that the lessons of this case we don't even fully understand right now. This reinvestigation focused on the wrongful convictions of Mr. Aziz and Mr. Islam and their innocence has been established. But why did the government allow these assassinations to take place? Like you mentioned, what was their role? There were a lot of undercover officers who were in the ballroom at the time, had information. Why were the true individuals never um, never pursued, even though the government had information about them. So those are questions that, you know, we can't learn until we fully understand exactly what happened. Are you convinced that the misconduct here was sloppy police investigation and sloppy prosecution? Or was this more likely willful on the part of the police and the prosecutors? I think it's tough to answer that question because, as Vanessa noted, the focus of this reinvestigation was about the wrongful convictions and innocence of Muhammad and Khalil. But I do think that it's clear that the investigation was shoddy because they were withholding information pointing to Khalil and Muhammad's innocence, information that they had within hours of the assassination of Malcolm X. So that clearly was not a thorough and comprehensive investigation and one that we would expect of the FBI and NYPD to uphold. I think that it was easy for the officials to dismiss this case just as black on black violence. And I think it allowed them to shirk their responsibilities and give Muhammad and Khalil your fair day in, in court. And that's exactly what happened. They were denied their right to have a fair trial. And the exact reasons why, still unclear, but it is clear that they didn't get their justice at that time. That, of course, is, is frustrating to the public. And I, uh, Vanessa, I'll ask you this question. Um, the NYPD and the FBI have said they, they cooperated fully in this reinvestigation. Is that true? Well, they certainly provided um, additional documents to assist in the review of the case. But, you know, just going back and taking a look at, you know, how this investigation unfolded, the Audubon Ballroom where the crime happened um, was released for a dance to occur within hours of the crime having been committed. 
um, the very rostrum that had bullet holes in it was, you know, decades later found in the basement of the Audubon ballroom. So even by the standards of 50 years ago, this is not an investigation that showed any care or concern for getting to the truth. And while we don't know the scope of the misconduct, the fact is, is that the NYPD had an undercover officer in the ballroom who was an eyewitness and didn't reveal that. That person would have had valuable information that could have assisted in the investigation and, um, you know, really helped with the identity of who committed the crime. And they didn't, you know, they chose not to reveal it. And they had documents that had um, the FBI, you know, information about who participated. And there's just no, no justifiable reason to hide that um, from the defense and from the world, which is what they did at the time. Do either of you think the NYPD or FBI have information today that has not been shared with the public or uh, in this reinvestigation that would shed some light on exactly how these mistakes, errors, or, or, or worse were made? Once our joint reinvestigation with the district attorney's office um, reached the point where the, the district attorneys agreed that these convictions needed to be vacated, you know, that is the end of the investigation. This focused on the exoneration of two, you know, innocent men. Um, but the the scope of who knows what, you know, that's going to have to be taken up by a commission or other entities who are independent and have that question um, as their the main purpose of the, the scope of that inquiry. Do you think there should be a congressional investigation? A congressional investigation would be a great mechanism for taking a look at this issue. What do you think, Deborah, gets lost in this discussion? I mean, there's so many layers to it. I've tried to touch on, um, and I think this this explains so much of the interest. This is this is a part of history that that a lot of people uh, have forgotten or never knew, um, and. The, the questions that surrounded the, the deep surveillance that was going on uh, of Malcolm X and his inner circle at the time, and why that surveillance couldn't have prevented uh, the assassination has always uh, been problematic for people to digest. That's one layer. There are other layers. What do you think gets lost in this? You're right. There are a lot of layers to this. And I think what gets lost, or more accurately, what is difficult to fully comprehend, honestly, I think is just the scope of the misconduct that happened here. I think we all have a sense of it. We certainly got the sense of it through this joint reinvestigation and uncovering the number of documents that we did, just the vast amount of information that the FBI and NYPD were withholding. But, and I think we all appreciate it. And obviously that was a strong basis for showing how it was so clear that Muhammad and Khalil are innocent. But I don't know if we'll fully understand the full scope of it. I still think that um, there's a lot to be said about what other information that they've been withholding. As Vanessa noted, we did get enough information to for the district attorney to realize that their convictions just clearly can't stand. But I think that the magnitude of this is a little, uh, you know, we will it'll take time for I think it, for us to fully appreciate that. Lastly, Muhammad Aziz is now 83 years old. He has been free for some time, but his name is now cleared. What does that mean for him? What will the next weeks and months and hopefully years look like for him? Well, as Muhammad said in court yesterday, 
he doesn't need a piece of paper to tell him that he is innocent. That's something that he's already always known, something that his family has always known. Khalil and his family have always known that he's innocent. And they've been joined by so many others who have already known that. So I think that this their exoneration is definitely important and momentous and it's important for the record to be cleared, but it's bittersweet. And um, I think indicating to them as well for them to finally get official recognition of what they and so many others have known for so long. Uh, Vanessa Potkin, Director of Special Litigation at the Innocence Project and Deborah Francois at Shane's Law. I want to thank you both uh, for joining us and thank you for bringing this to light. It is a momentous discovery for so many people who are just now going back and learning about the irregularities in this case. Other folks have been looking into this for years. Coming up next, we're going to talk a little bit to the man behind the documentary, the Netflix documentary, Who Killed Malcolm X? I want to welcome Abdur Rahman Mohammed. He is a historian, a documentarian, and the man behind the Netflix documentary, Who Killed Malcolm X? Mr. Mohammed, you have been asking that very question for decades, who killed Malcolm X? And it seems the news this week is about who did not kill Malcolm X. Thank you for joining us. And can you tell us your reflections, uh, broadly speaking, on these two men being exonerated? Sadly, one of them is not with us. One of them was in the courtroom. Yes, uh, it's a bittersweet victory because, like you say, uh, one of the men, his name was uh, Khalil Islam. At that time, he was known as Thomas 15X Johnson. He is no longer with us today. And uh, I knew him towards the end of his life as well and the grim struggle that he was fighting to clear his name. And it was so sad, uh, the reality of knowing that he probably would not live long enough to see that happen. He was quite ill at that time. And so as his sons said, Amin and Shahid uh, Johnson, it's a bittersweet victory. Uh, Even in the case of the the, the living uh, exoneree, uh, Muhammad Abdulaziz, he was known at that time as Norman 3X Butler, uh, yes, it's a victory, but he, you know, he's 83 years old and he had 20 years taken from his life, which destroyed his relationship with his family, with his children, with his grandchildren, with his great grandchildren. And so, like the judge said, you know, although uh, it's throughout the court throughout this conviction, nevertheless, it can never restore back what was taken from these men. Can you take us back to 1965 and help us understand a little bit about why these two men were targeted as suspects in the first place? In the Nation of Islam, there were men who were seen as vanguards of the movement. There was a paramilitary wing of the movement called the Fruit of Islam that acted as security and uh enforce the rules of the movement, so to speak. These men were considered the muscle, if you will, of the movement, the the protecting arm of the movement. They were singled out because it was easy to single them out. The Manhattan District Attorney has said this was a grave failure of law enforcement. And of course, for decades, people have surmised, researched, and looked into, including yourself, the role of law enforcement back in February of 1965. What do you think the role played by the FBI and NYPD was back then? 
Uh, well, I don't think about it. I know what they did. They created hatred and hostility against Malcolm X. They planted uh, false stories in the media about him, uh, articles that suggested that he was hungry for power, that he was going to be you know, the leader one day, that he was the number two man and things of this nature, which, which they knew would create jealousy and hostility against Malcolm even before he left the nation. After he left the nation, the, the hatred and the vitriol and the propaganda campaign uh, against him was put into overdrive. And this was fueled by FBI informants and agents who were uh, waging um, this hidden war against Malcolm. Their hands are quite dirty in all of this. And the, and the question remains, you know, how much did they know about his assassination? This reinvestigation by the DA's office, by the Innocence Project, uh, is clear to say that they found no co conspiracy on the part of the NYPD, no conspiracy on the part of the government to assassinate Malcolm X. But the question left unanswered is, we know that there was sort of a deep kind of surveillance going on of Malcolm X and his inner circle. We also know that uh, it was no secret he was being targeted. A short time before the assassination, his home was firebombed. Why do you think they couldn't prevent this assassination? They could have if they wanted to, but they didn't want to. You know, if you look at the newspapers uh, in the aftermath of the assassination, there was a sense of good riddance. He preached violence and he died violently and he got what he preached, so to speak. You know, uh, there, there were no tears for Malcolm X in the media and uh, the law enforcement despised him, reviled him, and they looked at it as a good thing that he was gone. So many people right now look at the exonerations of, of Khalil Islam and Muhammad Aziz and they can't help but draw parallels to the debate we're having today about how carefully law enforcement uh, deals with people of color when they are entangled with the justice system or perhaps how carelessly they are sometimes dealt with. What, what do you want to say about the importance of looking beyond just the injustice done to these two men and relating it to what we're struggling with as a society even today? I wouldn't want to suggest that... Um or, or come away with this, with the idea that things are just as bad today as they were back then. That would be false, that's not true. Uh, we're talking about a period before the, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, before the Voting Rights Act of 1965, before affirmative action, black studies programs, before the first black president who was elected Twice, we've had a black governor of the capital of the Confederacy of Virginia. We have black prosecutors uh, in most major cities. At least half of the police force are African-American. So I would want to suggest, you know, that we're struggling with the very same struggle that was ongoing at that time. But we do have work to do. We do have to make reforms in the system. Uh, absolutely. Um, it's too easy, it's still too easy to set up a black man, a black woman, uh, lock them up, throw away the key. I mean, there are exonerations going on all the time. The municipalities are paying out 
tens of millions of dollars in wrongful convictions. And that's because it's simply too easy to uh, lock a black man or woman away for a long time and forget about them. You know, it's just not uh, taken very seriously. We started this discussion by talking about who didn't kill Malcolm X. Your work in the documentary, which asks that question, suggests that there are good leads about who did kill Malcolm X. Can you talk a little bit about what should happen now that these two men have been exonerated and to a great degree, we have an unsolved mystery back on our hands? Well, no, we don't have an unsolved mystery because we know who killed Malcolm X. We know who carried it out. We know their names. The subject of Malcolm X's assassination uh, was dead letter frozen in the history books, and it was uh, resurrected, uh, propelled into the public consciousness through that explosive revelation uh, that I made back in 2010, where I positively identified the shotgun assassin. And I've also subsequently published photographs of the other uh, members of the assassination team. So we, we know who carried it out. And in fact, we've always known that these men were innocent. On the streets, it was known that these men were innocent. And this, the, the judgment at that time in the case was never accepted by historians and researchers. We've never accepted that judgment back then, but there was no advocacy, no one, there was no political will to right this wrong. We've known this for a long time. It's only the documentary, Who Killed Malcolm X? that put this back into the public imagination at a time when the nation was dealing with uh, our racial past and, 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 and taking stock, a great reckoning was taking place. So it was, a, it was the, the zeitgeist, uh, so to speak, that, that, brought this, uh, that brought this to pass. But before, How, yes. What have the last few days been like for you? Perhaps more important, what have the last few years been like? Um, <clears throat> Of course, it's a struggle. You know, I'm an old activist myself, and um, this was a an effort motivated by this passion and commitment. You know, to doing the right thing. Okay, it just grew out of it was it was a it was an effort that grew out of my commitment to uh, social justice and love for Brother Malcolm. And the the you know profound profound uh, wrong that was done here, and it just disturbed me greatly that uh, there was no desire to write it, and I, and I couldn't understand you know how so many people could know that there were two innocent men sitting in prison for a crime they didn't commit, and the true killers were walking the streets unmolested in Newark, New Jersey. Um, it, it, it was just an affront. It was an affront to all that is right and all that is decent. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it's been a struggle. And um, I don't like to talk about that. Uh, that's, you know, I did what I did and for my own reasons. And, and I'm very thankful and grateful and appreciative that it culminated in the outcome that we got yesterday. It was surreal. It, it was a heavy, heavy moment in that courtroom to witness that kind of history and exoneration after more than a half century. Imagine that. I, I think that's unprecedented in American history. I don't think it's ever happened before. So I'm very grateful.
Um, Abdur Rahman Mohammed, I want to thank you for joining us, the man behind the documentary Who Killed Malcolm X? And it is not an exaggeration to say a man whose work led to the clearing of two men's names, two people falsely convicted of killing Malcolm X. Thanks for joining us. It has been my pleasure. Thank you.